Das ist Aliska von From the Frontline, Behind Enemy Lines for Christ. Tonight in the studio we have Dr. Hammond with us. And Dr. Hammond, 40 years ago, Frontline Fellowship launched its first series of cross-border missions, and that was into restricted access areas. What led to this initiative? Well, South Africa back in the 1980s was really a country at war. And there were a whole lot of countries around us calling themselves the Frontline States. Angola, Mozambique, Zambia, Zimbabwe, they were the frontline states. And by the way, the chairman of the frontline states was generally understood to be Kenneth Kuhn, the elder statesman, uh, the present or rather dictator for life, the one-party dictator of Zambia. So they called themselves the frontline states in the front line of the war against South Africa, apartheid South Africa. And they were getting massive support from the Soviet Union, from Red China. They had hordes of Cuban troops around there and every kind of Soviet weaponry. And, of course, the landmines, limpet mines, rocket launchers that were coming in South Africa and causing grief from the Church Street bombings all the way through to the tax and farmers. It was all coming from the Soviet Union or Red China through these so-called frontline states. So I was doing my military service in the South African infantry, and we had a Bible study and prayer fellowship that met every night. And we were praying through Operation World. And as we were praying, obviously, we would turn to those chapters that dealt with the countries that were our immediate neighbors, our enemies, Mozambique and Angola in particular. And I was struck by what Patrick Johnson wrote about Mozambique, the least evangelized country in the southern hemisphere. What? On our border? How is that even possible? Do you know you used to have to smuggle Bibles into Mozambique when the Portuguese were the colonial power because they were Catholic and they didn't want to bring Bibles in? Literally, they were under the Portuguese, a place that you had to smuggle Bibles into. So uh, they'd gone from Portuguese Catholic, which was not that great, to communist, which was hideous. And here we were reading not a single missionary allowed in the country, a secular country, an atheist country, in fact, Samora Michel, the dictator, declared Mozambique the first atheistic country in Africa. And at that time, according to Operation World, not 4% would have called themselves Protestants of any sort. Not even 4%. And no missionaries, nobody under 18 allowed in any church services, no baptisms for anyone under 18, and you could carry on with how bad the situation was. Well, God really gripped my heart, and I thought, the Great Commission isn't just to go into all the safe peaceful, legal, easy world and stop at the barbed wire fence or the iron curtain or the bamboo curtain or the minefield or whatever is the marking. There's nothing magical about these borders. You can cross borders. The terrorists are crossing the borders coming into our country. They're coming to us with hatred and with landmines and with Marxism. Have we ever sent missionaries to them? I didn't know of any missionaries had gone from South Africa to Cuba at that stage. Had we ever sent missionaries to Russia? No, but they're sending terrorists to us. So why did we counterattack with the gospel? And the idea started to grow. Perhaps we could smuggle Bibles into communist Mozambique. That would be far more effective than the bombs they're smuggling to us, but not for destruction, but to save lives. Maybe we can become more than conquerors, not just to defeat our enemies like we did in the army, but to win many of our enemies over to become our brothers in Christ and to be committed to the Great Commission. So this vision grew in these all-night prayer meetings and the Bible study groups, and we start to discuss. And, and, and Operation World really kindled this fire within me that we must make it. It is a disgrace to think that a country right in the border of South Africa has not even 4% Protestants that, that don't have one Bible for a 1,000 Christians. And all of these things started to really work within me, and I felt this 
absolute obsession. We've got to get into Mozambique. Well, um, it was the prayer meetings, I would say, in the army that led to it and Operation World that directed us. Oh, praise God. What were the obstacles that needed to be overcome? Well, first and foremost, Mozambique and South Africa were effectively at war. There was no diplomatic relations. They had no consulates in South Africa. We had no consulate in Mozambique. There was no diplomatic relations to us. So the only way I could get into Mozambique was to go through a neighboring country, which we chose to be Swaziland. And Swaziland had diplomatic relations, so that that was good. Um, But still, my complexion reveals that I'm not local. So I knew I'd stand out like a neon sign over there. I wouldn't exactly be able to merge with the people. And uh, that, that would have been an obstacle. There was no fuel in the country. I was told, you've, you've got to carry on fuel and because there's no petrol in Maputo. You'll never get out again. And would you believe it, I packed my uh, five-liter petrol cans that were filled with fuel needed for my vehicle on the side of my vehicle, uh, sort of attached on uh, flopping on the side of my um, saddlebags. And by the time I got into Maputo, it was all gone. They were metal and over those terrible roads, they had all ruptured and all the fuel had spilled out through cracks at the back. And I didn't know, but there was a trail of petrol left on the dirt road and the potholes behind me. So I got into Maputo with no fuel to get back. Um, there was all kinds of obstacles, like we didn't know any Portuguese, we didn't have any contacts in Mozambique. So it was a real faith mission. What were the challenges facing churches in communist countries such as Mozambique and Angola in the 1980s? Well, first of all, communist, atheist, secular government that persecuted them. They weren't allowed missionaries. Many of them weren't allowed buildings. In fact, over 8,000 churches just in Mozambique had been confiscated or destroyed by the communist governments, of which 5,000 were Catholic and over 3,000 were Protestant. So huge amounts of of destruction of churches. Uh, They had arrested something in the region of 300,000 other people and put them to concentration camps, peace camps, as they called them, but they they were slave labor camps. Many had been shipped off to be slaves in Cuba, uh, forcibly taken there like contract laborers, almost like slaves. Uh, They weren't exactly paid. And uh, not only that, but... Uh, there was, of course, attacks by the communists. 75,000 people, most of them Christians, had been publicly executed. So there was a terror. There was fear. You could get virtually nothing. The shops were empty. Their money, the metacars were worthless. There was no electricity. There was no plumbing. In fact, the people would have buckets under every tap. Even outside, they would have the taps open. They'd have the plug in the bath with the taps all open because occasionally some water would trickle through. And so I wanted to catch whatever it was. And there would be no way that that you could get normal water. People would be walking long distances with buckets, uh, getting water even from the sea because uh, for washing and so on, there was plumbing had broken down. So virtually everything in the country had collapsed. Mm. And literally in the churches, we came across a place where the people came to church with a page of the Bible and they'd swap. Wow. And so these countries being countries that just went through war, was there any dangers you faced from that? We did face dangers. Uh, there was arbitrary arrests, could be arbitrary executions, and this did happen, and there were ambushes on the roads. I, I rode through ambushes, and where literally you've got bullets ricocheting off the road and uh, people trying to shoot at you with RPGs, AK-47s and um, PKMs, absolutely going through uh, a gauntlet of, of attacks. Occasionally, you could come under mortar and artillery fire. 
So there were, there were threats and dangers. Now, one of my first missions into Mozambique, the local people, after receiving us with enthusiasm and offloading what we'd brought, said, oh, we've got to report you to the local block committee and cheerfully walked along to where the commissar of the uh, area of the district was meeting. And by God's grace, the man wasn't there. He is at some conference. And so uh, we made sure we were out of town before he got back. But uh, that's the kind of, uh, even, even the Christians were so afraid to have any visitor without going and reporting at the block committee or local commissar. Wow. That's even today you need to go and report at each district where you are in Mozambique that you are there with papers, that you have an invitation. Oh, that's a bad uh, aftertaste that's left over from those days. Mm, yes, it's still bureaucracy there. How was Frontline Fellowship able to serve these persecuted churches? Well, first and foremost with Bibles. Uh, in fact, we learned that already in the army that going into Angola, what do you want in the people? What do you need in the people? Biblia, Biblia. They wanted Bibles. And so the hunger for Bibles was obviously first. Secondly, they'd need Bible teaching or medicines. Uh, so uh, those were the top three continually, always Bibles first, and then either medicine or Bible teaching as the second and third things we were asked for. And so how we were able to, to serve them was to bring in Bibles and Bible teaching, but then there were the people who couldn't read and write. In fact, we found that literacy was lower than 30%. So how do we deal with the illiterate people? Well, audiovisual. The Jesus film and the gospel recordings and the gospel messengers and the uh, the man the boxer speaks my language. 4,000 languages, gospel recording, did tremendous work. So we used audiovisuals and with flip charts. And so uh, with these, uh, at that stage, we didn't quite have cassettes yet, not in 1982. That came later. We're still using the card talks. Um, uh, where you've got like a gramophone or you've got a three-sided cardboard with a needle on one side and you'd put a pen in a hole on one side and you'd turn this uh, seven-single record around. You could actually hear it echoing between the cardboard plates ad adequately for you to hear what's being said. And you'd gather large crowds around. So uh, we helped the people first and foremost with Bibles and Bible teaching. But then increasingly there was also medicines and then they wanted us to speak up for them. They felt alone. We're a hidden people fighting a forgotten war. Do the people in South Africa pray for us? And mm -hmm. it was so important to know that they're not alone, they're not forgotten. So I think an important part of our work came that we would speak up for them by publishing newsletters, speaking at meetings, showing slides of the events, and at, in time even writing books like In the Killing Fields of Mozambique, Holocaust and Rwanda, Faith and Defiance Sudan. Wow. Yeah, speaking up for those that you left behind in the field and revisiting, telling them, we are actually praying for you. We know about you. That's such a great encouragement to the churches. How did you serve the combatants, the soldiers and the guerrillas on um, the various sides of these conflicts? Well, that was actually one of our very first visions. Uh, we understood the need to serve persecuted church, but there was also the idea of evangelizing in the war zones. Because our prayer fellowship had started in a South African infantry base and South African army base where we uh, were combatants. And here we, we obviously developed this concern because the Bible tells us to pray for enemies and to even love our enemies and to love them so much that we want to give them the gospel. Mm. And so how can I get the gospel to my enemies? Felimo in Mozambique, MPLA in Angola, Zon in Zapu in Zimbabwe, and so on. And uh, and, and the anti-communist guerrillas, of course, were easy. I mean, Renama in, in Angola, 
Norman Mozambique, Unita and Angola, these were our natural allies because they were anti-communist guerrillas and we had a lot of, in fact, I found them super enthusiastic, open, they were easy. But to get to the communists, that was hard. So the way I started was uh, distributing gospel booklets, especially we would distribute the gospel of Luke in um, in Portuguese, Shangan, different languages, of Umbundu and so on. And uh, I would try to offer them films. So I'd, I'd go up to military base, Filimo or Zanu in Zimbabwe, would you like to see a film? And on this, by this time we'd gotten organised. We actually had um, uh, generators and uh, we'd, uh, if we had two motorbikes, one would have generated, the other would have the projector. And we'd show them the film, the Jesus film. And uh, they'd be absolutely enraptured. I remember showing the Shauna Jesus film in uh, right up near Mount Darwin in, in Zimbabwe. And a, a lot of these people who would have been my brother's enemies when my brother was in the army. And uh, these folks often absolutely struck the heart, brought to conviction, kneeling on the ground, putting their rifles to the side and, and surrendering their lives to the Lord. So I had the opportunity of baptizing even Philemo troops, uh, enemies, people who uh, my brother would have fought um, just a few years before in the war. So we reach them with literature, we reach them with audiovisual, we reach them with film evangelism, with open-air preaching. Uh, I must say, sometimes it was harder than you might have expected. So this one day I was in Maputa Harbour, determined I'm going to reach the Russian sailors in Maputa Harbour. So with my pockets stuffed with New Testaments in Russian and um, uh, with a, in my sling bag as well, and to get past the security, I walked briskly on the other side of a truck that was driving past the security into the harbour and uh, so he didn't quite notice. And I'm walking along there and I, I greeted the, the Russian uh, sailors and uh, gave New Testament, New Testament. They had simple black covers, no words on the outside. Hand him out. And after a while I thought, boy, this is going well. I've distributed five New Testaments to Russian sailors. I'm feeling this surge of excitement. And suddenly I heard this bellow of anger behind me. And a large Russian sailor, I mean, sort of like Arnold Schwarzenegger-sized character, he walked towards me and he picked me up over his head and flung me in the harbour. And next thing, I'm coming out of this filthy, oily water with oh. guns and litter all around. And next thing, my New Testaments are landing on my head and on the water around me. The sense, talk about being deflated. I, I And now I've got to find a, a ladder somewhere at the corner where I can actually get out of this slimy, uh, oily uh, harbour in Maputo Harbour. That was my first attempt to evangelise Russian sa sailors, and I must say it didn't go very well. <laughs> wow. And what kind of reactions did you um, face when you confronted a communist with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, one of the most uh, extraordinary occasions was Colonel Jan Breitenbach, the legendary Colonel Breitenbach, the most combat-decorated South African soldier in history. He's the founder of the reconnaissance commander, one of the first parabats. He was serving South Africa even up in Biafra during the Biafran War, in the last plane coming out of Uli um, as Biafra fell. Uh, he had led a South African company up there to to uh, serve and uh, train the Biafrans who were fighting against the Muslim jihadist um, dictatorship there. And uh, he found the reconnaissance command. He recruited 3-2 Battalion, which is all ex-communist, black, Portuguese-speaking uh, Angolans to fight for South Africa. I mean, quite an extraordinary man. Well, Colonel Breitenbach, when he retired from the army, joined our mission. And he came to our camps and courses and helped train us in tracking, anti-tracking and escape and evasion, all this. And um, he went on one of our missions, Southwest Africa, and we preached for a whole month everywhere and all the troops all over Southwest. Well, at this time, there was a ceasefire in Angola. 
between South Africa and Southwest Africa because the Berlin Wall had just collapsed and so there was this opening to uh, ceasefire. And so as we were um, up there, we, we immediately uh, started thinking about reaching the communists. So one morning as I woke up, I looked across. The colonel was in a sleeping bag looking intently at me and said, Peter, let's walk into Angola and preach the gospel to communists today. And we did. We did this at three separate locations across the border with a 3-2 battalion man who could be a translator into Portuguese or Spanish. Uh, we walked across into Angola on three separate locations and Colonel Breitmark stood up there and he says, now there's this, it's ceasefire, there's a big company of Angolans and some Cubans and then there's South Africans on the side. And So he stood up there and preaching so that all the communists could hear My name is Colonel Jan Breitmark of 3-2 Battalion. My men and I, we've killed thousands of you communists. Thousands. We never had any trouble killing you. Our trouble was catching you. You ran so fast. You broke Olympic records running away from the fight. Even when you outnumbered us 10 to 1, you still ran like the spineless, yellow-bellied cowards you are. Why did you run so fast? You see, not real soldiers. You're afraid to die, and you should be afraid to die. said, you're only brave when you've got defenseless civilians, when you've got people with their hands tied behind their back with wire, then you're brave. But when you see soldiers, real soldiers, South African soldiers, like three tubers, and you run like the spineless yellow-bellied coward you are. Why? Because your God is Karl Marx. Your religion is atheism. Your commissars, they're the priests of Satan. You're all damned. You're doomed. You're going to burn in hell forever. If you knew what was waiting for you, one second the other side of the grave, you'd crawl across the minefield and beg three tubers to show you the way of salvation in Jesus Christ. And he preached like this at different places. And I must say my hand went to my nine mil on my belt and I thought the colonel's wanting the short way to glory. I didn't think I'd see the sunset. <laughs> I thought this was it. I mean, we weren't heavily armed. You know, there's a couple of nine mils amongst us and we were um, up there surrounded by communists fingering their RPGs, RPDs, PKMs. They're just uh, Tokarovs. They're just awash with weapons. And here we are basically aggravating them. But, you know, we got away with it place after place, preaching and I've, I've had the chance of preaching to communists while a prisoner in, in, like in Mozambique um, where I had one of these characters introduce himself to me, the interrogator, SNASP, security police in Maputo, Mashava security prison. He said, I am the devil. I said, you're not the devil. He said, oh, I'm the devil. I'm not only a Marxist and a, Stalin, a Leninist, I'm a Stalinist. I was trained in Czechoslovakia. So I said, I'm a Christian. He just spat out with such a, I hate Christians. And he went on a tirade against Christians. And then he told me how Jesus was the first communist and uh, that Christianity teaches what Karl Marx taught, which is from each according to his ability to each according to his need. So I said, when he stopped, I said, well, that seems strange because if Jesus is the first communist and the Bible teaches communism, why do you ban Bibles and persecute Christians? Uh, well, he then went into a tirade against the, the uh, church in the West and Margaret Thatcher. So I gave an explanation of Margaret Thatcher's uh, economic policies. And uh, he went on a rampage uh, promoting revolutions. I gave a lecture on the French Revolution and the Renaissance and first of the Reformation. And we kept swapping. For six hours, we swapped lectures. And I discovered, well, he likes history. And I can talk history all day. That's okay. Much better than having my fingernails ripped out. And I was in this uh, workshop, which uh, it looked like a hardware store. There's armchair... Um, They've got me an armchair where there's straps, leather straps for the legs and the arms, not that they put them on me, but they had batteries and crocodile clips and long wires. And you could see it looked like hardware tools on a bench. 
this is interrogation room. Very bad. Very, very bad. And there was a clock against the wall, so it's the one place I could actually see what the time was. That's why I knew it was six hours. But uh, dealing with these sort of people, you can imagine, I met with small terrorists and did evangelistic debates with them. And, um, it, and in fact, a lot of these stories are now in our Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ book, giving the stories of confrontations with communists, which many of which are absolutely extraordinary. And I think many people would find hard to believe that you could have such conversations and still be alive afterwards. Mm-hmm. Well, when Colonel Breitenbach and I got home from the to back to base from our uh, day of rampaging around aggravating the communists on the other side, we had this commandant come to us say, oh, Colonel, the lines have been humming today. Uh, Pick, that's Pick Porter, Minister of Foreign Affairs, is the Helen with you and Hammond. And he's been on the phone to Fortrick uh, Hochter, that's Army HQ. They've been in touch with the Bastion, that's Fintuk HQ of SWATF, Southwest Territorial Force. And they've been with Sector One Zero, that's on Dungwa, headquarters for the border. And they've told me, you get Hammond and... Colonel Breitmach, out of here, out of the country by the end of tomorrow. So we were evicted from the country. And the colonel says, I fired the first shots of the war back in 1966. And I've spent the last 24 years dedicated to serving South West Africa. Now they're expelling me for preaching the gospel. And that's what it came down to. Um, so, yeah, we had some fun confrontations with our Marxists' enemies. Well, praise God he kept you safe through all that. In restricted access areas and war zones, there must be a lot that can go wrong. So what kind of crisis situations did Frontline Fellowship have to confront in the field? Oh, going through the last 40 years to produce our Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ book, it brought a lot of memories, including uh, this one mission back in 1994. We sent four vehicles into the field. It was it was a good a series of teams. Four vehicles went in the field, but only one vehicle came back. Mm. We, one vehicle we were donating to Zambia, so that was fair enough, but the other two vehicles, oh, one team, the team to Angola was, they succeeded in smuggling in the Bibles, medicines into Angola, but on the way back they were ambushed, and they were arrested, they were imprisoned for breaching the blockade on Angola's in 1994, and uh, uh, that that was, that was uh, quite dramatic because I was in Zambia at the time running a biblical worldview summit and next thing I got a message to contact back home there was not one permanent worker or staff member in Cape Town we just had a few holiday volunteers holding the fort because all of us were in the field Mm -hmm. and shame we had this young 18 year old girl having to deal with these dramas the Angola team is in prison in Namibia and oh well it was God's timing because I was in Zambia where by God's grace I had been imprisoned a few years earlier, but I'd made friends with people who now were the government of Zambia. So General Godfrey Meander, for example, was now vice president of Zambia, uh, but he had been a prisoner in the same prison and cell that I'd been, um, a Lusaka Central Prison, for opposing Kenneth Kuhnder, the previous dictator. So I was able to contract Godfrey Meander and, and say, um, our team's locked up in, in Namibia. Uh, could you do anything about it? And he said, well, actually, I can, because... Um, We've got the Zambian government, the Namibian government, and the UNITA Freedom Fighters in Lusaka right now, and uh, he is chairing a meeting to bring peace to the Angolan forces that were fighting. And so uh, Zambia was then able to say, there are some South African missionaries locked up in Namibia. They need to be released before this continues. And the Angolan government said, well, that's nothing to do with us. That's the Namibian government. He said, it doesn't matter. 
I want them all set free before the end of today, before these talks continue. And so our team was released after just a few days in custody. Hmm. But the next thing, I'm continuing with my BWS, and what do I get? I get another call through from, from a volunteer in Cape Town. And uh, our team, who had been locked up, had now been involved in a deadly head-on collision accident driving through the night. Of course, they'd gotten sick and imprisoned. Uh, everyone was not in good condition. But um, Anthony Duncan, one of our missionaries, who's part of that team that had ensured the ton of medicines and Bible smuggling to Angola, had been killed in a head-on collision in the early hours of the morning um, coming out of Namibia. And uh, suddenly, my vehicle was the only vehicle left of four vehicles that had gone into the field. The Land Rover had gone to Angola, finished. Other bucky, which had also uh, rolled on the way up and uh, going through the Golden Highway, which was mostly dirt and almost head-on collision. You can't see in that big billow of dust on this dirt road. Uh, had to leave the road rolled, destroyed the canopy, which was made of fiberglass. So suddenly, of four vehicles, only one was left. And the vehicle I had taken up to we had to go on a circuitous route, picking up the survivors of the different frontline teams. Um, all the way back to South Africa. And seven people in one uh, bucky, with, uh, and that was a single cab, um, with a trailer upside down on the roof, trying another trailer, and um, seven people in the vehicle. And that was, that was a rough uh, mission where a lot went wrong. But we've had other ones. Of course, we've gotten imprisoned, we've gotten arrested, we've gotten shot at, we've gotten uh, vehicle accidents. We've had artillery and rocket bombardments. I was locked up in Zambia, locked up in Mozambique, arrested in Sudan, uh, detained in Z Zimbabwe. Um, of course, we've got malaria, bilharzia, uh, tick bite fever, a whole range of different things. Uh, that's not too unusual on a mission. So a lot of things can go wrong from uh, problems with wildlife all the way through to problems with governments, which is more likely, and bureaucrats. Mm -hmm. And yes, a lot can go wrong on a mission, which is why you need serious prayer. And 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 the teams back home need to be supporting the people in the field who are in serious spiritual warfare. We're going into mm. Satan's territory in many cases mm. where there's strong witchcraft. Just take a place like Mozambique, which was under witchcraft for millennia, under Catholicism for 500 years, has got a huge amount of witchcraft, has got a massive Muslim population north and jihadist terrorist population and had a communist government for several decades. You put all that together, you, you're talking about a lot of bondage. And so missionaries going into that terrain are going into spiritual warfare. So yes, a lot can go wrong, which is why we need to be prepared practically, spiritually, physically, because um, these obstacles will come, these crises will come, we will get sick, it's inevitable and uh, we've got to be seriously trusting the Lord for how to get out of these messes and how to recover. Mm. Yeah, and that's why we also always need to be sure we are moving and going in God's will, praying with every step. What kind of crisis situations the Frontline Fellowship have to confront in the field? Um, well, and like being under artillery bombardments and rocket bombardments and aerial bombardments and helicopter gunship bombardments. Oh. Those are some of them. Uh, tribal war, even. I mean, we've even had been caught in the middle of where we thought we were helping the people of South Sudan but the tribes around so, but you're helping a tribal enemy and well I didn't see this as tribal I just saw that we're helping people in Sudan now but you've got someone saying well the people you're helping are enemies and 
but you're on the same side against the Arabs. No, no, no. <laughs> Talking tribal. And suddenly we find ourselves in serious trouble. Um, I've even been lined up against the wall uh, for a firing squad for getting in the wrong situation at the wrong time. How did you get out of that? Well, that's actually another one of the fun things we've got in the book. Uh, in fact, the amount of, of crises, which we haven't even reported on before, which I saw, well, now is a time it's safe for us to put in the book. That one I'm now thinking about was in Zimbabwe, 1984. Serious amount of troubles and upheavals, dissidents, 5th Brigade and all that in Zimbabwe. And my elder brother, who had been in the Rhodesian Army, wanted to show me, after he'd just come out of a disastrous series of attempts to get into Mozambique and being expelled from the country and from Mozambique back in Zimbabwe. Now we're on our way uh, back um, to South Africa, but on the way he wanted to show me a base that he had been stationed at, uh, Grand Reef, mm -hmm. which was near Matori, and it was a bit of an air base. Helicopter gunships operate out there and um, for operations into Mozambique. And the whole base was surrounded by oil drums, now empty, but uh, used as part of a barrier. And looked totally deserted. We thought it was deserted. And so he takes me along to show me the base he used to be at. And you go around the corner and suddenly we surround by a whole lot of soldiers, scruffy, scruffy soldiers. Uh, everything undone, uh, shoelaces done, everything. Yeah, all, all their shirts totally unbuckled. It looks like they've um, just woken up from the middle of Saturday sleeping. And... Uh, they surround us and order us out and start to search us. And they, Oh, my, the drama involved there. Well, at a certain point, they weren't happy with, with us and they decided to put us against one and shoot us. And they're, they're drunk and they're stupid and they're just shouting and everyone's carrying on and several people. Uh, and so my brother and I are standing there against these oil drums looking at our options, which was dwindling. And, I mean, our only option was to tackle them, uh, wrestle the weapons from them and shoot our way out. But now we're hundreds of kilometers away from South Africa. There's no way you can keep driving if you're involved in a shootout with the uh, Zimbabwe army. We'd probably have to van our vehicle and go by foot. We're hundreds of k's away. How could we do it? Could we double into Mozambique and perhaps join Renamo? Uh, and, and so the, all these things are quickly being discussed while we are literally running out of options and these people are lining up getting ready to shoot us. And we, we had a plan on how to, how to turn the tables and get the weapons and so on. And there was a heavy machine gun to one side. My brother had handled the mag before in the army and the belt-fed weapons. And we, 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 we had a plan, and at the moment where we might have passed the point of no return, some Zimbabwe officer comes along and starts shouting and kicking a few people. And he gave us back our keys and told us we were free to go. And that obviously totally changed the situation, but it was yeah. that disastrous. It was, it was literally at this point of... And the thing just escalated out of nothing, just out of nowhere, just and before you knew it, um, we were facing a firing squad. Sure, that will keep you on your toes mm. and on your knees. What kind of um, prayer answers did frontline missionaries experience? So many. Of course, just every mission needed money for fuel and money for Bibles. And there was just some of the more bizarre answers to prayer. Um riding across the country on my off-road motorbike. Now, back in the 1980s, you could fill your tank for under five rand, and that would be a car tank. Uh, but still, um, that was a lot of money at that stage. And so I, was, uh, I knew I didn't have enough money to reach Mozambique. And I'm at this petrol station, King Williamstown, and they're filling up my tank, and the petrol 
uh, station owner comes out and chats to me about my Christian stickers all over. I had a Jesus Save stick on the front of my uh, motorbike and things like this, yes. and Jesus Lord in my helmet. And so he said, there's no charge on the house. And uh, I mean, that sort of thing was a real big help because we were very short of money. And uh, the amount of times that, that we struggled for things and, and how the Lord provided <clears throat> that we would have the vehicles or the funds. And I remember on my way out on my first mission behind the Iron Curtain up in Eastern Europe, and I just drove past the post office on the way and checked the post box. There's always a post box key on me. And uh, there's an envelope in there with a whole lot of Deutschmark. Now, this is long before the Euro. But I'd never been to Germany uh, on a mission before, and I'd never gotten Deutschmark in the post uh, as for the mission before. And here's hundreds of Deutschmark at the very time that I'm about to go to Germany and to Eastern, East Germany through the Iron Curtain. And nobody knew where I was going. I don't tend to tell people where I'm going ahead of time. The money actually came from Erlo Stegen for Cross the Bunter mission. He said later, well, he just felt that God said send him some Deutschmark. And, and it came at the right time. Another time I was heading out also to Germany and going behind the Iron Curtain, I got from the same person, Erlo Stegen, Cross the Bunter, several hundred Deutschmark in the post. I, the only two times we got it, and just, just before those missions. I mean, how's that for provision? Uh, there were so many times that we could not have possibly afforded either the vehicle or the vehicle repairs or the Bibles and, and how the Lord just provides. So that was one major um, series of seeing how the Lord provided or we couldn't have done it. Mm. Hitchhiking. I did 140,000 kilometers hitchhiking in the early years of this mission. It was often I either didn't have a bike or the bike was in a repair shop and I couldn't afford to fix it for five months or so till money came in. Uh, or there was no fuel and I sometimes had to leave a vehicle in um, some churchyard and ask the folks if they could look after my bike and I hitchhiked further. To, so I did missions across the border without a vehicle hitchhiking. My first missions into Zimbabwe were hitchhiking and same into Sudan and Rwanda. I was hitchhiking. I, I didn't have um, a vehicle for it. So uh, you can imagine you, you need to trust the Lord for provision and a whole range of things. And the fact that we, we got such good timing. So, for example, I was at this missions conference, Gakawi Global Consultation on World Evangelization, 1980. 97 in Pretoria and the missions mobilizing leader was George Verver. He's walking around, he's handing out unreached people groups. He's got all Joshua Project unreached people groups and Krongo, Nuba Mountains. Peter Hammond, you go to the Nuba Mountains. You take the Krongo. He flings me the file. Krongo. Right, okay. So next time I go to the Nuba Mountains, just a few months later, I need to find people from the Krongo unreached people group. Yes, Pastor So-and-so and, -so and uh, Chaplain So-and-so. No, but I mean, the unreached people. Yeah, the, the Krongo. Yeah, yeah. Uh, pastors, evangelists, so-and-so, and chapel, so-and-so. So. I speak to them. Sure enough, they are the Krongo people and so on. But you meant to be an unreached people group. There were not even five known Christians amongst them when the missionaries were kicked out in 1960. No, there are tens of thousands of Christians now. And uh, wow. Next thing is, but we don't have any Bibles or New Testaments. And from the file I see, but the New Testament was translated by Sudan United Mission, Australian Sudan United Mission missionaries back in 1960s. But that's after they were expelled. And so it hasn't been able to get back in because of jihad and the Islamic government, totally illegal. So I knew this New Testament completed. But what conditions? And well, when it came out next, we organized to get printed. So we found it. It's full scap paper, the old full scap paper, not our normal A4s now. Uh, and it's old duck, 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 
manual typewriters. Forget electric typewriters. They didn't have electric typewriters in. And I didn't know anyone who could proofread in Kronger, so we just lithoplated it straight from the, the manuscripts. Mm-hmm. And we've got that red, uh, strange-sized New Testament sitting in our cabinet here as an example of that answer to prayer. So we took in the first New Testament, the Kronger language, into the New Mounts. People were so ecstatic. It was translated by people who probably were in heaven at that stage. And we were getting it in there something like 40 years later into the New Mountains to the Kronger people who when they left, when the missionaries left, there were only five known Christians there. And by the time we got back, there were tens of thousands. But they didn't have a Bible. So it just shows we reap where others sowed. Mm. Now, praise God for working in ways we don't understand. How can missionary-minded Christians of today evangelize in war zones? Well, we've got wars going on right now, and you think of Ukraine and so on, and many people just look at a war zone as a place to avoid. But bad times are good for spiritual work, and it's so important for us not to avoid the difficult places because, in fact, the difficult places are sometimes where people are most responsive and needy. Just like in Matthew 25, our Lord tells us that on the day of judgment, he will evaluate us on the basis of what we did to visit those in prison and care for those who are sick and give food to the hungry and drink to the thirsty and a clothes to the naked, to, to love in action practically. And so whatever you did on one of the least of these, my brethren, you did to me. Whatever you did not do on one of the least of these, my brethren, you did not do it to me. And so I think it's so important for us to just realize, stop this idea of thinking you can only serve God where it's safe and legal and peaceful. No. In fact, the war zones are the best places to serve God. And in my experience, you cannot compare ministering in a peaceful, safe place like, say, Cape Town or London or Australia with with ministering in a place where the people have been deprived of everything, don't have Bibles, where they haven't had a visitor in years, and you come in and minister, you can have such a greater impact for the gospel. If you're willing to take some more risks and if you're willing to go into some difficult places, that's where the gospel is going to advance and be deeply entrenched. And so I would encourage churches not to ignore the war zones. And uh, praise God for our friend, Shanna, who was at one of our Great Commission courses, who happens to be in Ukraine this time. When she went to Ukraine, it was peaceful, but she's not leaving now because they are in need there. And her kitchen's busy, her home's busy, their school's filled with refugees. But it's so important that Christians don't flee the flock. When the sheep need the shepherd the most, we need to be there. So uh, I believe that we can all pray. That's, we, we must all pray. Most of us can give and some of us can go. And so the church must continually have this idea of um, pray, give, send, go. We've got to be involved in these areas. We cannot leave the war zones in the hands of the, the violent. We've got to be sure that, that we're there as salt and light and bringing the mercy and the grace of Christ and the gospel of Christ and hope and peace and love uh, into some of the worst situations. Yeah, and we're all part of one body, and where one member suffers, the whole body suffers. And if we know of these areas and these Christian suffering, we are called and told to go and to share in the areas that has been neglected. What lessons could they learn, um, these Christians in war zones, um, from the last 40 years of Frontline Fellowship's ministry behind enemy lines? Well, actually, I've got a chapter just on that in the uh, Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ book, What Have We Learned? There's so many lessons that we've learned over... Uh, the last 40 years in the field. And I, I just think of some of these 
uh, great quotes from missionaries that I've had the privilege of serving with, such as Francis Grimm says, a missionary must be B.A. and R.F.A. B.A. born again, R.F.A. ready for anything. A missionary must be ready to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice. And that's so true. A missionary must comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Mm. And the will of God can never lead you where the grace of God won't keep you. And God's servant is God's responsibility. It's just so important for us uh, to keep going. As Bill Bathman used to say, God just loves to be trusted. And um, uh, God gives the best to those who leave the choice to him. It's, it's vital that we recognize that the, the grace of God can never lead us where, uh, the, uh, where the power of God cannot keep us. And so the will of God and the grace of God work together. And God never commands us to do anything that doesn't provide the power and the resources to fulfill. So uh, there's a lot of lessons we've learned. One thing is don't reinvent the wheel. Find out who's doing what. Cooperate to those who are already there. And so, for example, if, if you were interested in getting involved in Ukraine right now, well, Slavic Gospel Association has been involved there for nearly a century, since the 1930s. Slavic Gospel Association been working in Ukraine and Russia. They've got at least 4,500 congregations in the area that they networked with, and they are distributing millions of meals in the war zones of Ukraine right now and doing a lot of good blankets and clothing for refugees. So Slavic Gospel Association is a fine Christian ministry that's in the area that's got roots there for generations and so one can work with them. Samaritan's Purse is a group that's going in and trying to help the refugees and help the people in the situation right now. So find out who's doing what and get out there and get involved. In our case, we got our gospel booklets from World Missionary Gospel uh, World Missionary Press from the beginning. We got our audiovisual from Gospel Recordings. Uh, we discovered who was doing what and worked with them. When we need to fly behind the lines, well, Missionary Aviation Fellowship exists to help with that. There's so many, when you know the different groups in your network, and whenever we get to any church or area, my first priority was would be to go to the churches that are already there, any Christians in the area, and ask them, how can we help? And be guided by the people on the ground because they know the needs better than we can as outside visitors. And I think that's made us so much more effective right from the beginning to always seek to be a servant to the local church or whatever Christians happen to be in those areas. Short-term work is only useful if it's in terms of long-term mm. goals and in association with the local church or missionaries that are permanently planted in. So that's that's why I think um, we need to continually network and Operation World can really help us to understand who's doing what where. And uh, yes, there's so much more of the lessons that we learned, but uh, one could find that in the book. Mm. And how can one get this book in hands? Right, so Frontline Behind Me Lines for Christ is coming out next week, God willing, and we'll have it available as print on demand worldwide and an ebook and of course hard copy. And I personally prefer the hard copy. Some people prefer the ebooks. That's fine. We're going to make it available. We even have hardcover available and softcover. 448 pages, 440 pictures and maps uh, covering 40 years of Frontline. It's uh, a whole, um, it, it's covering so much of what God's been doing in spite of all the um, Cold War and the violence and the persecution church. And it's really a voice for the persecuted church and inspiration for Christians who want to get involved in war zones and go out of their comfort zones into restricted access areas. So if a person goes on the Frontline website, frontlinemissionsa.org, frontlinemissionsa.org, or email us, mission at frontline.org.za, and uh, you can find out more about the book, and you can order them from admin at christianlibertybooks.co.za, admin at christianlibertybooks.co.za. 
www.christianlibertyfellowship.ca and of mm. course on social media, Frontline Fellowship or Christian Liberty Books. You'll mm. find the details and the links right there. Mm. Wonderful. And how can our listeners get involved in this mission? We have a great commission course every year and we're planning our next one June, July from 24th of June this year to 13th of July. And it's a three-week practical, hands-on, boots, laced up, climbing mountains, getting out into townships, outreaching in, in Muslim areas and the rest. So if you want to be involved in a real body, mind and spirit, stretching minds and muscles experience of real missions on the ground, um, it's like a short-term outreach opportunity, but much more intense with a lot of learning. So it's, it's a training course, practicals. And uh, the Great Commission course attracts people from far and wide in normal years. We hope after two years lockdown lunacy uh, is over, we'll start getting people again coming from as far field as Canada, New Zealand and and Europe as we've had before. Mm-hmm. So uh, Great Commission course, contact us, mission at frontline.org.za or look on frontlinemissionsa.org under events. Mm-hmm. You'll see details about the Great Commission course and um, videos of previous ones and also application forms if you want to come. Mm, wonderful. And that is a very much, um, I went through that as well, and it's very encouraging. It will sh- certainly strengthen your faith and you'll learn more than you ever thought you could about missions. I want to leave you with this verse from John 4, verse 35. Lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already ripe for harvest. That was Dr. Hammond on Behind Enemy Lines for Christ. God bless and good night.